Father in heaven. Here it is again. The Sabbath. The blessing that you've decided to give to your children that we don't really understand. I ask, Father, that you do something special this day. And more than any other day, Father, I ask that you draw still nearer to us. So near, Father, that the things of this world fall away from us. We pray, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. Give us clarity of thought and feeling that they reflect your own. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. We're going to do a quick review. Last night, we asked the question, why does God love judgment? We looked at a verse. Let's look at the verse together. Psalms 37, verse 28. We asked the question, and we're going to ask this question every service of every day. Why does God love a judgment? Psalms 37, and we're looking at verse 28. Psalms 37 and verse 28. When you have it, just say amen. For the Lord... What does it say? For the Lord loveth judgment. That's interesting. God loves judgment. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. This is the premise for every study of every lesson we look at that God loves judgment and we need to understand what God loves and learn to love it as well. We need to see and understand it. And I wanted to show you another point, and we looked at it yesterday, but I want to put it here on the screen. I want you to just have this riveted in your mind. It says, when we as a people understand what this book means to us, there will be seen among us a great revival. What kind of revival? A great revival. We do not understand fully the lessons that it teaches, notwithstanding the injunction given us to search and study it. And we looked and we saw that the book here mentioned for sure, of course, the Bible, but two books in particular, the books of Daniel and Revelation. It says when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, believers will have an entirely different religious experience. And that's the problem with amongst the people of God today. The people of God have an intellectual ascent to information, but we lack the experience with the Almighty God. Let me ask you a question. Let's ask this question everywhere I go, because it makes so much sense. If a man is standing in the middle of a road and there's a Mack truck driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour, and the man is hit by the truck, will the man be changed? Every single bone in his body would be changed. His skin complexion might even change. Is that all right? He would be changed. Well, let me ask you this. If the man is changed by being hit by a Mack truck, how can you not be changed if you've met the Almighty God? If the Almighty God of creation that spoke everything into existence and comes down and communes with us, how is it that the Christian still speaks like the worldly? 
How is it that the Christian still eats what the, the world eats? How is it that the Christian still goes where the world goes if the almighty God has made an impact in your life? I have to ask the question because there are so many that name the name but yet have not met the man. It's a solemn thought. When the books of Daniel and Revelation, apparently something in this book brings us into connection with this man. Something in the book of Revelation, the book that people don't want to study, oh, it's too complicated, it's for the professors and the theologians, it's not for us common folks. It tells me right here that when the books of Daniel and Revelation are better understood, the people of God will have an entirely different religious experience. They will be given such glimpses of the open gates of heaven that heart and mind will be impressed with what? With the character that only a few must develop. All must develop in order to realize the blessedness which is to be the reward of the pure in heart. The blessedness. Have you ever seen heaven? I mean the open gates of heaven. Have you seen the ladder that extends from heaven down to earth? Do you know that God is not a respecter of persons? Have you seen Red Sea's part? Do you think that was only for Moses because he was special? What about manna from heaven? Friends, I tell you the truth. We as a people think these things are only for Old Testament people. Only for New Testament people. It's not for our time. God of heaven won't come down and commune with his people like he did back then. Oh, friends, I have something to tell you. This is not true. Jesus wants to come close to his people today. Today he wants to show himself in favor of his children. The problem is, friends, we don't want him. I'm going to show you tonight. The reality is we'd rather walk on our knees upstairs beat ourselves with whips than encounter the man Jesus. It's a serious thought. Now I want to share one other thought with you before we begin our study this evening. And this one we shared last night. I want you to look at this, contemplate this, have your mind riveted here. It says, wherever hearts are open to receive the truth, Christ is ready to instruct them he reveals to them the Father and the service acceptable to him who reads the heart. For such he uses what? No parables. To them as to the woman at the well, he says, I that speak am to thee am he. And then we looked at Matthew 13 and we saw Jesus and the disciples and the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? So I said, Jesus said, I speak in parables so that they who hear can't hear. Those who don't want to hear won't have to, won't have to hear what I have to say. But those who are pure in heart, those who really want the truth, I will speak it in parables and they will understand it clearly. Friends, when you read the Bible, when you read this book, especially the books of Daniel Revelation, it's all in code. It's secret code, but you know the, the key that unlocks the understanding of this book? Let me tell you the key. It's spelled L O. V-E. It's that key that understands and unlocks this book because in that love relationship with Jesus, he begins to share his secrets 
with his friends. Let me illustrate the point to you. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Go there with me. In Genesis chapter 18, Jesus and his angels are coming to visit a friend. And the friend is a good hospitable Seventh-day Adventist, and he doesn't let strangers go by. And as he doesn't let strangers go by, he invites these men in, not knowing that these are angels. When he invites them in, he receives a blessing. But I want to pick up the story in verse number 23. Actually, verse number 16. I want to pick up the story in verse 16. I want you to pay attention to this, and I want you to notice this is how Jesus reveals prophecy. And notice what it says in verse 16. It says, and the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. So Abraham was being hospitable. I'm going to walk you guys out. I'm going to see you out to your car. Then he says in verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Now, you have to understand the idea here. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. Amos 3, verse 7 says, surely the Lord God will do nothing unless he reveals his secrets unto his servants, the what? The prophets. So here, Abraham is escorting these angels away, and God is almost like, well, I can't leave yet. Abraham, I got something to tell you. So he turns around, and he reveals this secret to Abraham, and he says, now watch why God will reveal it to him. Watch why he says, notice what he says, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Why is that? For I know him. For I know him, what do you know about him? That he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Do you see that? Jesus is about to leave, but he said, I can't leave. I got to share my secret with my friend. I know I can trust him because I know that he will teach his family after him. Can God trust you? Listen, I can be here tonight and I will share with you prophecy and it will be clear as day to me, but it'll be clear as mud to you. You know why it could be that way? Because maybe if he told you, you still wouldn't obey. If he break it down, he put it clear as day, this is what's going to happen. He said, oh, he's been legalist. He's been fanatical. He's going to be an alarmist. Well, maybe, maybe God won't share it with you. You ever got a, a gift from, from somebody? Or you gave a gift to somebody and they looked at that gift and said, Psh, I want that. How'd you feel when that happened? You ingrate, right? Isn't that how you felt? Somebody gives a gift or they give a rose and you give a rose to a girl, she looks at it, throws it on the ground, stumps on it. What do you think? You think she loves you? No. We call it the gift of prophecy. We treat it inconsequential. As if it's not really something to be understood. Oh, just tell me to love Jesus. But do you understand that prophecy is just a revelation of the man Jesus? 
We showed you last night. That which has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am that which is, which was, and which is to come. He is all these things, friends. And when you look at prophecy, you're looking at the hand of God. You're looking at the person of God. I give you this preface because when I start to study the prophecy, I need you to take notes. Is that okay? All right, let's go. Let's get ready to study. Tonight we're talking about two mysteries and one hope. Two mysteries and one hope. We're going to look deeply into this subject matter. Behold, I show you a mystery. Do you know where this is taken from? The book of Ephesians. Go there with me. The book of Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. The book of Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning, I want to read specifically two verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And notice what the Bible says. The Bible says these words. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. And shall join and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be what? A man leaves his father and his mother and joins unto a woman, and they are going to be one flesh. That's a mystery. But yea, notice what the verse says this is a great mystery. Uh, at first, you read this, you're thinking, we're talking about a man and a woman. But the verse goes on to say, but I speak concerning Christ and the what? Now, if you've ever been married, you know that it is a mystery how two people can be one. To give you some examples, my wife and I have been married about six years, going on six years now. And I married her, and I thought, you know, you think you know somebody. Right? And she thinks she knows you. And, and as you grow closer and closer together, you realize that you like it hot and she likes it cold. Well, how do you work that out? You sleep in the same bed. She likes it hot. You like it cold. She likes to watch certain things. I like to watch certain things. I like to go certain places and eat certain food. She likes to go certain places and eat certain foods. We come from two different places, completely two different backgrounds. How can two people who are completely opposite become one? Well, this is a mystery. And friends, I'm going to tell you the secret. By the end of this night, you should understand how that mystery works. But it's a mystery. Do you know that I know Seventh-day Adventists who live in the same house, but the wife sleeps on one floor and the husband sleeps on another? I know Seventh-day Adventist families who the husband and wife do knife fighting with each other because they don't love each other. I know Seventh-day Adventist families where moms and dads don't really love Jesus, but they bring their children to church and expect the church to teach them about Jesus when mom and dad don't love Jesus. I know families like this. I've counseled with families. A woman's come to me in my face and told me to my face, I don't love my husband. How does God expect me to love a man when this man does X, Y, and Z to me? I don't love him. There's nothing in me that wants to go back to him. I'll tell you the good news. That lady that told me that, they're happily married still today, amen? 
I show you a mystery. There's a mystery there. How can two who are completely opposite be joined into one? Well, that's not my pure subject this evening. I'm talking about a prophecy. I'm talking about Christ and the, well, tell me something. The church and Christ, are they on the same wavelength? Absolutely not. Not right now. I tell you right now, the church, God's people, have decided to have another lover. The church, God's people, have decided that I'm going to go to another man to provide my needs. I can't imagine. I go home, I see my bride, I haven't seen her, you know, a couple wet days now, and she tells me, Andre, don't worry about it. Yeah, this other guy gave me $1,000. I can take care of everything I need to take care of. What? Who's this other guy? What's wrong with you, woman? I mean, I would have a problem with that. Wouldn't you have a problem with that? But the church, God's people, have done the very thing that I'm speaking to you about. And I'm going to show you this mystery. Notice here, this woman, Revelation 12. Everybody knows about this woman? A woman in the Bible represents the what? Represents the church. And the Bible tells us that there's this great red dragon who's making war against the church. Two opposing powers. I wonder if these two opposing powers would become one. I'm just questioning. The dragon is standing there to devour the woman as soon as she bears this child. Now look at this. I want you to go to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to be here in this verse for a while. In fact... Go to 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to expose this power. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse number 1. And we're going to study. I like to study. Let's study. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're beginning at verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says here. It says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. In other words, don't get affrighted. Jesus is not coming soon. That's what he just said. Don't get affrighted. The events that have to transpire are not happening yet. There's something that has to happen before Jesus comes. Notice what verse 3 says. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The coming, that's right. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. It seems to me that Paul had a Bible study. He had a Bible study with the Thessalonians. He said, look, I told you about what was going to happen. Don't be deceived about what's going to happen because this is what I told you was going to happen. Now we're going to look at it. I'm going to put it here on the screen. Can you see it? I broke it down because I said, where did Paul study? Where did he get this information from? How did he come to his conclusions? And he listed eight 
particular characteristics of this man of sin or the mystery of iniquity. Now, mind you, I know you think you know where I'm going with this. But I promise you, you don't. These eight points here on the screen, these eight points of the mystery of iniquity are listed. They are as follows. The man of sin is, has to be revealed. The son of perdition, this power opposeth and exalteth himself. This power sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This power will be revealed in his time. But the mystery of iniquity is already working. But something is holding back the iniquity, the mystery of iniquity. But when he is revealed, there will be supernatural workings that bring this power to the fore. Now, what I did was I took those characteristics and I labeled them with the verses where I found them. Then I moved them over and I made a comparison with Revelation 17. And tomorrow evening, when we deal more thoroughly with this subject matter, we'll deal with Revelation 17. But Revelation 17 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 are a perfect match. All right, we're in class now. I hope you're taking notes. They're a perfect match. And as we're looking at this characteristics, I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're looking specifically now at the man of sin. Notice the verse again. We're studying. The verse says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling way first, and that man of sin. So then my mind started going. The Bible's supposed to explain itself. Is that right? So my mind started going, man of sin, where can I find this in the Bible? Is there anywhere in the Bible where this phrase is found? And there was nowhere that I could find in Scripture where man of sin is found except for this one verse. So then I said, okay, maybe there is a correlative verse. So I found the correlative verse. Numbers 9.13. I want you to pay attention to the principle that I'm going to lay right here. Numbers 9.13 says the following. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even that same soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season, that man shall bear his sin. Hmm. So I started thinking. If the man is not on a journey, he's not far from where Passover is supposed to be, he just decides, I'm not going to go. The man that does this, the Bible says, this man retains his sins because he did not bring his offering in its appointed season or in its proper time. Listen to what I'm saying to you. If a man says, I'm busy, I don't need to go, I have other things to do, but does not bring an offering, does not... No, let me ask you. You guys are Bible scholars. Passover. What's the Passover a symbol of? The angel passing over, and they painted blood on the... So the Passover symbolized Jesus' blood covenant protecting the people as the destroying angel went through. Is that right? And if the angel, if the people did not put the blood over the doorpost, what happened to the people? They lost their lives. They lost their firstborn. Is that right? 
The man that decides not to bring the offering in his time retains his sin. Therefore, he becomes a man of sin. Listen to what I'm telling you. We're studying right now. So then I said, let's go a little deeper. Let's make another correlation. So I made another correlation. I looked at another verse. And we're going to look at the passage more thoroughly. And you'll understand where we're going. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at the context of this passage. We're studying together. First Samuel chapter 2. And notice what the Bible says in beginning at verse number 12. Pay attention to the details when you study the Bible. First Samuel chapter 2. We're starting at verse number 12. Watch this. And I thought this was neat. It says, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not who? They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in, in the seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the flesh hook brought up the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh until all the Israelites came thither too. Now watch this. And also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the men that sacrificed, give me flesh. Give me flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh, but what kind of flesh? That means the blood's still in it. Is that right? And if any man say unto him, let not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take off as much as thou soul desireth, then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it how? Now this is the most solemn verse in the passage. Watch verse 17. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord... For men abhorred the what? Let me ask you a question. What's the offering again? What's the, what's the offering? It's the what? It's the lamb. Is that right? What's the, what's the lamb a symbol of? Okay, watch. So because the priests treated the offering in a bad way, the people didn't want the offering. And if you don't bring your offering in its season, what happens to the people? They retain their sin. A corrupt priesthood causes the people to retain their sin. Listen carefully. I've seen minister men. I've gone across the country. I've met ministers, preachers, and teachers of the word, and their children have been abused. I've seen it myself. A man wants to stand up and preach, and just a few hours before, he has smashed his girl's heads together and said, oh, we're all sinning till Jesus comes. Sanctification is a work of a lifetime. Tell me something. You think those two girls want to hear that man preach? No, I don't think so. When the priesthood is corrupt, friends, people don't want anything to do with Jesus. But let me ask you another question. Who ultimately is the priest? Because we want to blame everything on pastors. You know who the priests are, right? The men in the home are the priest. The men in the home, the, the men that are supposed to represent Jesus to the wife is the men of the home that make the people say, I don't want Jesus. The children say, hey, this is fake. This is garbage. You guys don't live this thing. 
And when they do this, friends, they are rejecting the Christ that you showed them, which is no Christ at all. So even if you say the name, Satan is so smart, it's almost like he inoculates the people to the name of Jesus. You say, Jesus, I don't want Jesus. Do you understand this, the idea? A corrupt priesthood causes the people to say, I don't want the sacrifice. Therefore, they retain their sin. But let's go a little further. Same verse, same chapter, different verse, verse 18. Notice what the Bible says in verse 18. It says, but Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with linen and ephod. Verse 22, I'm sorry. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, how they lay with the women that assembled at the door. That's serious. Now, you, you hear about that these days, don't you? Ministers sleeping with their parishioners. You hear about that, and then they switch the pastors to different churches. It causes the people to hate the priesthood. Friends, I'm telling you, let's not play with sin. Is that okay? Let's not name the name and then do something completely opposite. And if we do that, the people say, I don't want anything to do with it. It's the same thing with the using the name Seventh-day Adventist. You say, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but you're so mean. So ornery. Slapping your kids around. I don't understand it. I was in a store one time. The lady didn't know I knew she was an Adventist. She went into that health food store, getting that vegetarian good, good stuff. And the lady gave her the wrong change. And that Seventh-day Adventist lady started to go off on that girl. And I said, man, what kind of representation is that? How could you say that you love Jesus but then treat his children in such a manner? It's about being practical. Is that all right? But notice, verse 24 says, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. The sons of Belial, uh, 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 Eli's sons, you guys are making the people transgress because you as a leadership are not following the teachings and the counsels of God. You want to keep the young people in the church? I'll tell you the secret. I'll tell you because I was born in the church, never went out into the world. I'll tell you how to keep them. Be real. Be real Christians. They don't need louder music. They don't need bigger drums. They don't need skits and plays. All my friends have left the church. What they want is realness. They want the genuine. Where's the real Christian at? You see, we've married the world. We've married the things that are... Just think about it. If you sit there and you watch TV, and you watch the things that Satan puts on that television screen, and I'm not saying TV is evil because three ABNs on there, amen? But you sit there and you watch the things that, that the devil puts there, and you sit there and you say, I can handle this. You know, I used to do that because you watch rated R movies, I can handle this. I'm a grown person. Do you know that what you behold, you will now reflect in your behavior? If you sit there and you watch it long enough, you will now reflect it. If you think you want to be cool and you watch all that hip-hop and that gangster stuff and you want to do that gangster, of course you're going to look like that. You sit there and watch Wheel of Fortune all day. Just think about it, just Wheel of Fortune. 
What are you going to do? You're going to become a will. Not doing any missionary work in a daze as if the world is going to keep going as it's going. It's not going to keep going the same way, friends. The world is about to end. All the events, all the signs tell us that Jesus is about to come and he's coming for a people that love him more than anything else. You can't fake that. No. You can fake us. But you can't fake Jesus. And these sons are causing the people to transgress, to hate the things of God, naming the name, but not living. Not living. Let's go a little further with this. Verse 25 says, if one man sin against another, the judges shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. So man of sin, very simple idea. The man of sin is this. If one does not bring an offering in its season, then that person retains his sin. Therefore, that person becomes a man of sin. And a corrupt priesthood causes many people to retain their sins because they don't want Jesus. Is that point clear? Amen? Let's go to our next point. Son of perdition. So I looked up son of perdition. And you can look here on the screen. I looked up son of perdition. I just wanted to get this thought in my mind. And, and, and it was reflected in these verses. Except there come a fallen way first and that, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. John seventeen twelve says these words. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. John 17, 12, who is the son of perdition? This is Judas in this verse. John 17, 12, talking about Judas. The son of perdition is Judas Iscariot, and the traitor was prophesied about. So the son of perdition, the one that's close to Jesus, that one, that person is the one that's called the son of perdition. Now, next verse, watch carefully, because we're laying out a principle, we're building. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, but they that shall be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Question, what drowns men in destruction and perdition? What, what, what does it? Okay, foolishness or the love of riches. Listen carefully. Principle number two, the focus on money leads to perdition, the loss of one's soul. The focus on money. My eyes are focused on money. What did Judas carry? What was he in the, in the 12? He was the treasurer. He's the treasurer. He held the bag. So the love of money, the focus on money, will drown a man and lead him into perdition. So point number one, Judas is the son of perdition. Point number two, money, the love of money, will lead a man into perdition. But point number three, Hebrews 10.38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto what? Perdition but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What leads to perdition in this case? Point number three, to draw back from salvation leads to perdition. So let me just say that real simple. I talk to young people all the time, and you know what they tell me? 
I'm only, I'm only 16. I got time. So I'm not going to give my heart to Jesus now. I need to have some fun. So what's happening is what they don't understand is in that one choice, they're drawing back unto perdition. To draw back from salvation leads to perdition. It leads to destruction. Point number four. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, preserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Point number four. God has judgment and perdition set aside for ungodly men. Now, here's my thought. How many good people are going to heaven? No, no good people are going to heaven. You guys understand that? I, I, I just, I like to say that so I can get people's attention. No good people are going. Only those who have been changed and saved by the blood of Jesus are the ones that will enter into the pearly gates. Only those ones. But if you're good, I'm a good person. You're lost. You must find your center and your focus and lay all your weight on the lamb. All your weight, friends. The son of perdition. What is happening here is, and watch the paradigm of the, of the principles laid here. Point number one, Judas is the one that loved money, drew back from salvation, and is lost. Let me ask you, how many of you love money? Don't raise your hand. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, the that's why the last test will be, you will not be able to buy or sell. It comes down to your love of money. That's why the last crisis, all the world now is having this economic crisis. Well, why? Well, for the love of money. There's a reason why things are transpiring this way. You and I are going to be tested at our very core. Do you love Jesus more than you love bread? Listen, man, I'm telling you, it's going to come down to it. The question is, do you want Jesus to come or not? And for the most part, the admin people have said, no, Jesus, don't come right now. I have to have a bigger house. Don't, don't come right now, Lord, I have to get my degree. Oh, I know a good one. Don't come right now, Lord, I got to get married. Not understanding every choice like this only delays the inedible, more pain, more suffering. Every eight seconds, someone says, life is too hard. While you're sitting here comfortable in the pew, somebody right now is being molested. While we decide, Lord, don't come right now. I got things to do. I got a life to live. Friends, I tell you the truth. The reality is we don't love Jesus. And until we realize that we don't love Jesus, we're stuck. You know, I was outside today in Arizona. And I said, man, it's pretty down here. It's almost paradise. feels nice. I can see how people can get comfortable down here. I can see why everybody who retires wants to come to Arizona or Florida. It's nice. If you think about it, homes that don't have Jesus aren't nice. Son of perdition. So I was questioning, and I, I wanted to look up this word, son of perdition. I wanted to see if this phrase was anywhere else, son of perdition. And 
I couldn't find it anywhere else. And then the Lord showed me something. He said, Andre, why don't you compare son of perdition with sons of Belial? I compared the two. And I put the, the Greek up there and I wanted to see what it had to say. And I looked at it and it says for a son of perdition from a presumed derivative of which means damnable, destruction, die, perdition, perish, pernicious, ways, and waste. Then I said, sons of Belial, what does that mean? By extension, destruction, wickedness. I said, wait, let me look at this more, more closely. I ran to one of my friends and said, bro, do you see this? He said, yeah, that's, that's a good plausibility. Why don't you look in 1 Samuel? And I went to, or is it 2 Samuel? Look at 2 Samuel. Go to 2 Samuel with me. And 2 Samuel David is having his last vision. David is giving his last prophecy. In 2 Samuel 23, and we're looking at verse number 6. 2 Samuel 23. Actually, let's start at verse number 1. Daniel is, uh, David is giving his last prophecy. He's in his last vision, and I wonder what he's prophesying about. Now watch, we're studying right now. 2 Samuel 23, it says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and, a, and the man who raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be what? Must be what? must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord, and he shall be as the light of the morning which the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springeth out of the earth by a clear shining of rain. Although my house was not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not grow. Now watch this. But the sons of who? Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with what? Interesting. They cannot be taken with hands. Now watch. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. This is David in his last prophecy, and he's talking about the sons of Belial. Now, what I did was I compared verses, and I put them on the screen so it would save a little bit of time. So here's three verses. Watch, watch the verses. Thou sawest till the stone was cut out without what? Remember now, this, this verse over here said, because they cannot be taken with hands. I saw till the stone was cut out with our hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Now notice verse 25 uh, of Daniel 8. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by priests shall destroy many. He shall also stand against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without what? Well, interesting. Without hands seems to mean something very important. 
Without hands means that there is divine intervention. Now notice the next verse. This is the most important verse. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without what? And putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Hmm. So God's going to deal with the sons of perdition without human intervention. So listen to me. Listen to me carefully. Can I'm going to say it real soft so you can get this point. See, we have this misnomer that what we need is more Bible workers. We need more literature evangelists. We need more preachers. We need more teachers. And if we just rallied everyone together, just last hurrah, we'll go out there and we'll finish the work. There's a problem. You see, I've seen us spend lots of money to do evangelism and get very little. I've seen it happen. I've seen effort. I mean, I do it all the time. I have literature evangelists and Bible workers. We work together. We push out, and we see sometimes little effort, little results. You know what the problem is? We're doing it with our hands. We're doing it with our might, with our strength. Where the Bible says, not by might, nor by power, but by my what? The people of God don't have his spirit, friends. Can, can we just be real? Listen, let's just be real for a second. When the children, when, when, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in one place in one accord, and the spirit of God came into the building, and the whole building shook. 3,000 were baptized in one day with a small group of people. Not 3,000 baptized worldwide in one day. Do you understand? Friends, you and I need to be agonizing for this union between God and humanity. Listen, you shouldn't be satisfied unless you get it. It's a promise. Divine intervention. But let's go a little further. Because I have a little bit more to go and my time is fleeting. Notice here, but the man shall touch them must be fenced with a, a, a hand of iron. Notice what the Bible says in Psalms 2 verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalms 2 9 is talking about Jesus. Revelation 2 27 says, and he shall rule them with a rod of what? Iron, talking about Jesus. Notice what it says in Revelation 12, 5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19, 15. Notice what it says. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with that with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Do you see here? When David is prophesying, he's prophesying what will happen in the end of time when Jesus will supernaturally come in and deal with the son of perdition. Let's go a little further. We're still studying. So what I did, I said, let me look at this verse 23 more carefully. And notice the key phrase there, they shall be utterly burned with fire in one place. So you look at Leviticus 21.9. Leviticus 21.9 says, and the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the what? 
Or she profaneth her father, she shall be burnt with fire. Daniel 7.11 says this, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Very interesting. Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore. You see the relationship between Revelation 17, 16 and Leviticus 21, verse 9? They shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with what? Notice again, Revelation 18, 8. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine. She shall utterly be burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judgeth her. It repeats. David has seen something in vision and has taken him all the way down to the end of time, before Revelation was even written. And David sees it and says, God will supernaturally intervene and deal with this power. Now, my question is, and you're going to see why is it that God deals so harshly with this power? Why is it that God deals so strongly with this particular power, calls it the son of perdition, calls it the man of sin? Why does God deal so harshly with it? Let's go a little further. Now watch this. I thought this was beautiful. Notice the verse here in Thessalonians 2 verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. It says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So what I, went did, what I went and did, I compared what the prophecies taught about this power that opposed and exalted. Now watch what it does. Verse 7 and 8. Verse Daniel 7 and 8, it says, Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This mouth speaking great things equals exalting himself above God. Do you understand the idea? Okay, next verse, Daniel 7, 21. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints. I say war with the saints equals opposing God. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go a little further. Verse 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, that's exalting himself, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, that's opposing, and think to change times and laws, that's exalting himself. Look at Daniel 8, verse 10. And mind you, all these verses are talking about the same power. And the Bible is emphasizing it over and over and over again. And there's a reason. Daniel 8, 10 says, And it waxed great. Well, that's exalting itself. Even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and stars to the ground and stepped upon them. That's opposing. Daniel 8, 11. And yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the hosts. That's exalting. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. That's opposing. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. That's opposing. And do you notice that in every opposition, it's either against the people or it's against the law of God. Listen, listen. The opposition is either against the people of God or it's against the laws of God. Watch this. Verse 8, verse 25. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself, that's exalting, and by peace destroy many, that's opposing, and shall also stand up against the prince of princes, that's exalting and opposing. Now I thought, okay, maybe this is what Paul was studying. 
You see, this phrase in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, he got this from somewhere. So Paul's studying this, he's looking at it, and I came across this passage. Watch this. Oh, you can't see it. Oh, yeah, you can see it. Here it is. You can't see it? I'll read it. Daniel eleven thirty six says, And the king shall do according to his will, and shall exalt himself. Do you see that? Almost word for word quotation, and shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Paul almost verbatim took from Daniel 11.36 and put it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Almost verbatim. Then it says in verse 37, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Now why am I spending time here? Notice, there, are, there is a prophetic line. You know the first one? Babylon. Everybody knows this, right? Babylon. Next one is what? Are you sure? All right. Medo-Persia. What's the next one? Greece. What's the next one? Rome. Very good. What's after Rome? What's happening here? We done broke off. I mean, there's a lot of confusion. After Rome comes Papal Rome. Now, Listen, friends, I, I have to give you fair warning now. This power that I'm showing you right here is on full assault right now. And listen to me. Listen to me. The people of God should be very wary of what's transpiring right now in their history. The Bible spends a plethora of time in the prophetic scene highlighting this papal power. You know how many verses I just used just to show you the son of man, the son of perdition? That was a myriad of verses just for this one power. Why is God telling us to pay attention? Notice what else. I'm going to show you something else. Let me pass this. Notice the characteristics here. And we're studying. It's okay to study. Notice Ezekiel 28, 15. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the mist of thee with violence, and thou hast what? Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy the old covering chair from the midst of the stones of fire. Look at Isaiah 14, 12, and 13, and 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did as weak as the nation? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will what? I will ascend into heaven. I will what? I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Please understand what I'm saying to you right now. This power in verse 36 that we read about, which is the papacy, has the same spirit of Satan. This power that I'm talking about, and I'm not talking about of people. 
There are many good Catholics. majority of God's people are in the Catholic Church. But I'm talking about a system that is making moves right now and will soon surround the people of God where there's no way out. I'm going to show you. This compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin, foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalting himself above God. That gigantic system of false religion is a what? Let me ask you a question. What's a masterpiece? What is a masterpiece? It's an original. It's something... It's fantastic. It's never been done before. It is a masterpiece. I wonder why it's a masterpiece. She writes this and says, this is a masterpiece of satanic power, a monument of his efforts to seat himself upon the throne to rule the world according to his what? So when you see the papacy making moves, you should ask yourself the question, what is Satan up to? You need to ask the question, what is Satan up to? Because this is his masterpiece. There's another one, too. There's a second masterpiece. There are two masterpieces. There's two of them. Many of us are actually following the, the second one, and we don't even know what it is. There's two masterpieces. It's 1,260 years that the papacy ruled from 538 to 1798. Everybody knows this, right? This is basic fundamental Adventism. 538 to 1798, the papacy rules and dominates, and you have all these characteristics of the papacy. At least 15 here. There are many more that I could do, but this is a satanic masterpiece. I want you to lock it in your mind. Now, there's a reason for this. Do you realize Babylon? When you say Babylon, do you think Christian when you say Babylon? No. When you say Medo-Persia, do you think Christian when you say Medo-Persia? No. What about Greece? Do you think Christian when you say Greece? What about Rome? Do you think Christian when you say pagan Rome? But when you say papacy, the unique thing about the papacy is that it's a blend of Christianity with paganism. That's what, you, that's what you get. It's a unique blend of Christianity with paganism. That's why one billion followers in the world follow this system. Do you listen to what I'm saying? Now watch. I'm going to challenge you. Notice here in Deuteronomy 19.15. Notice what it says there. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity. How many? So one person can't come and accuse you of doing something wrong. You have to have two. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, for any sin, in any sin, for when he sinneth. At the mouth of how many witnesses? Two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Now, if I'm calling the papacy the man of sin, how many witnesses do I have to have? I have to have two or three. Now watch this. Go with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We're going to start at verse number 2. Watch carefully. Watch carefully. Revelation 11 
Revelation chapter 11, verses 2. It says, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the city shall they trodden underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power to my, what? Two witnesses, and they shall prophesy how long? One thousand two hundred and three score days, closed in what? Did you see that? Do you see the verse? How long are they prophesying? 1,260 years. How long did the papacy rule? 1,260 years. For they had to be two witnesses in order to call this power the man of sin. I wonder what the two witnesses are. We don't have time to go into that. Someone says the Old and New Testament. Then I say prove it. Amen. We have pat answers as a people of God. We have pat answers. What are two witnesses? Uh, uh, what's the spirit of prophecy? Uh, pat answers. But can you show from the Bible? If I say, what does water represent in prophecy? You tell me. Or is it, where's that in the Bible? Well, that's one, one, less than 1%. Well, what's a beast about prophecy? Tell me. It's a kingdom, right? Well, where is that found in the Bible? You know it's in one of those books, right? Somewhere in the myriad of those 404 verses, it's somewhere. Hey, listen, friends, none but those who have fortified their minds with the truths of the Bible will be able to stand to the last great conflict. None. What does none mean? None means none. Is that right? If you haven't solidified yourself, listen, you have to know for yourself. You got to break it open. You got to be able to say, okay. I don't know this, Father. Please be my teacher. Boom. Open it up, and he teach you. So it's yours, not your husband's, not your wife's. What is yours? We're still studying. I don't want to deviate too far. So there's two witnesses. These two witnesses are prophesying for 1,203 score days. There's a beast that comes up to kill the witnesses. You know why they kill the witness? Because it doesn't like the testimony. Are you listening to me? All right. Can I get the sound? Listen, listen carefully to the words here used. Turning us now, Bill Donahue, president of the Catholic League, and Robert Goldston, senior political analyst from the Americans, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Robert, let me start with you since, uh, since the Archbishop teed up the debate uh, rather well. Address his point, which is the honorary degree in particular, to be bestowed upon the president, somebody who is openly pro-choice, and it's not consistent in his views with what the Catholic Church believes, is what is an affront to many Catholics and what has been saying that should not. So this, a bomber belongs at Notre Dame to speak at a symposium to address the law school of all in favor of that. To give him an honorary degree would be like uh, Howard University giving, giving David Duke a, a degree in, in racial politics. It flies in the face of everything that we believe in, and we don't need people in that Catholic Ironically, though, even though I love the church at 817, most of them agree with me according to 
time I came here, I showed that to this group that we are studying with, but then I saw it in action a couple of days ago. Did you guys see what happened? You didn't see it? Oh, Obama did that little, you know, political move with the contraceptive situation. You remember that? You don't remember? And, the, and then the bishops came out and said, hey, you can't do that. And within four days, you're not hearing me, within four days, he said, well, let's come down to a compromise. Now, I, you know, I'm not a politician, so I'm not into that. But I watched what they did. And I watched what the president did that galvanized all the Protestants behind the Catholics. And I saw Protestants say, and on Glenn, Bick, Glenn Beck's show, and I saw uh, um, Mike Huckabee, and they said these words, and I have a, I have a caption, we are all Catholics now. Now wait, you don't understand how dangerous that is. Watch this. And we just went through a couple of, couple of the verses, but notice what this says. God's word has given warning of the impending danger. Let this be unheeded, and the Protestant world will learn what the purposes of Rome really are only when it is too late to escape the snare. She is silently growing into power. Her doctrines, her what? Her doctrines are exerting her influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up in her lofty and massive structures in the secret recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. Are you paying attention? See, the Protestant world has no business going over to the Catholics and saying, we are, all, we are all Catholics now. They don't understand what they're doing. Notice what this says. Stealthily and unsuspectedly, she is strengthening her forces to further her own ends when the time shall come for her to strike. All that she desires is vantage ground. And this is already being given to her. We shall soon see see and feel what the purpose of the Roman element is. Well, you see, friends, do you understand? You, don't, you and I, if we look with our natural eye, we're going to look at what they're doing and say, oh, there's no, they're all good people. It's, all, it's okay. We should all work together. Let's be friendly. Let's invite them to our universities to teach us how to do evangelism. And we're doing it and we're setting ourselves up we're trying to be friendly when Jesus said, don't be friendly with serpent. Malachi Martin served three popes as the diplomat and a spy, speaks 17 languages, is a renowned biblical scholar and professor at Rome's Pontifical Biblical Institute, and he helped translate the Dead Sea Scrolls. I want you to notice the title of his book. The Keys of This Blood, and notice the, 
Subtitle, The Struggle for World What? Dominion between Pope John Paul II, Mikhail Gorbachev, and the Capital West. Let me ask you a question. Is Rome still alive and well? What about Mikhail Gorbachev? Well, he's alive, but he's not, that, that, that communism over there is not well. Amen? That's done. So apparently, one of two are out of the way. I wonder about capitalism. I, I wonder what's happening with capitalism in America today. Notice what he says. It, what is what the prophet says in the great controversy. The Roman church is far reaching in her plans and modes of operation. She is employing every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation. Listen. In preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world and to reestablish persecution and to undo all that Protestantism has done. It's as if Malachi Martin stole it out of the great controversy. It's like you took the title right out of the great controversy. The struggle for what? World dominion. And then the prophet says what? Rome is far reaching in her plans and most of She is appointing every device to extend and in her influence and increase her power and preparation and for, for a fierce determined conflict to regain control of the world. Would that be dominion to you? Look, when I'm watching these things, I have another video. I didn't, I didn't put it out tonight, but it's in Britain. They're in Parliament. And a man stands up. And he says, Foundation X. You look it up, look it online. Look up Foundation X online. And he stands up and, and, and he says, Foundation X. And he's talking about Foundation X. And he's going on and on and on how this uh, foundation wants to give billions of dollars to Great Britain to get Britain out of debt and is willing to give it with no interest. They'll help build new schools, new hospitals, new everything. And then it slips out of his mouth who Foundation X is. I said, Whoa. Foundation X. Millions and millions of dollars. So much money in the world, nobody's ever been able to count it but one place. Do you know what that, that place is? The Vatican. And as soon as he slips and says the Vatican, everybody's like, your time's up. Time's up. Sit down, sir. Your time's finished. This is a real thing. And somebody says, well, Brother Andre, you're doing hate speech. Soon this will be hate speech. But I took 45 minutes to an hour just to show you from the Bible this power that the Bible is highlighting. And I'm showing you now that this power is reasserting itself and there's a union now between church and state that is developing. This is a strange mystery. This is the mystery of iniquity, friends. A couple more things to share with you then I'm going to stop. Great Controversy 572, it says, a prayerful study of the Bible. A prayerful study of what? would show Protestants the real character of the papacy and would cause them to abhor and to shun it. But many are so wise in their own conceit that they feel no need of humbly seeking God that they may be led into the truth. Although priding themselves on their enlightenment, they are ignorant both of the scriptures and the power of God. Now watch. They must have some means of quieting their consciences and they seek that which is least spiritual and humiliating. What they desire is a method 
of forgetting God, which will pass as a method of what? Isn't that a strange thought? I had to read that at least 12 times before I understood what it was saying. What they desire is a method of forgetting God, which will pass as a method for remembering him. Then I said, wait a second. Let's not just apply that to those people. Let's apply that to this people. You see, we have a problem. We like to come to church at least once a week. It's a method of serving God, but at the same time, we're forgetting him. We have outward, ostensible righteousness, but inwardly we are ravening wolves. Listen, friends, I just, I just want the real thing. I'd rather not preach at all. Do you understand this? Is, to me, I'd rather, I'd rather read a book. But do you know why God says there has to be a preacher? Because the people do not study for themselves. Do you know in heaven there won't be any preachers? Because no one will say know the Lord because they all will know the Lord. But friends, this, this conflict is right at our door. Last thought, mystery, two mysteries. I've showed you one mystery. I want to show you the second mystery. When we want a deep problem to study. Anybody like deep problems? I like deep problems. Let us fix our minds upon the most marvelous thing that ever took place in earth or heaven. I wonder what the most marvelous thing that ever took place in earth or heaven. The incarnation of the Son of God. That's the most marvelous thing that ever took place in earth or heaven. God gave his Son to die for sinful human beings, a death of ignominy and shame. He who was commander in the heavenly courts laid aside his royal robe and kingly crown and clothing his divinity with humanity came to this world to stand at the head of the human race as the pattern man. What's the pattern man? What's that mean? Ladies, you, you know, you, you, you ever do sewing? Maybe you don't sew anymore. Maybe it's not this age of sewing. But my, my mom used to sew. She had a pattern. She'll put that pattern out there and then she'll cut according to that pattern. Is that right? And whatever that cutting was, it reflected the pattern. That's how Christians are supposed to be. Jesus is the pattern man. And he's developing a people that look just like him. Now I want to go to these last few verses. Not all of them. Colossians 1, verse 26. Let's look there. Colossians 1, in verse 26. Listen, friends, they're doing a union of church and state. We need to do a union of church and state as well. Our church with heaven and state. Amen? Colossians 1.26. Listen carefully to the verse. Colossians 1 and verse 26. When you have it, just say amen. The Bible says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of what? Can I tell you a secret? Remember yesterday, 
If you weren't here yesterday, you can't remember. <laughs> but yesterday we talked about the temple. We talked about the glory of God filling the temple. Remember that? Do you remember what happened when the glory of God filled the temple? What were the priests not able to do? They were not able to minister. Is that right? Can I tell you a secret? If they're not able to minister, I'll ask the question before I tell you the secret. If they're not able to minister, what happens to the sins of the people? Either they stay on the people, or if they've already confessed them, it's done. Go to Revelation 15, and we're going to end. Watch carefully. I'm telling you, I'm telling you a secret. In Revelation 15, I want you to see something. Because this is all God is waiting for. In Revelation 15, I want you to read now with me, and start in verse number 5. It says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of what? Who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with what? Let me ask you a question. What is it filled with smoke with? The glory of God, it says. Filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven last were finished. Here we go. The temple is filled with smoke. Is that right? No one is able to minister in that temple. Probation is closed. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he who is righteous, let him be righteous still. This is a symbol of the close of probation. But remember, I told you yesterday that what you see in the physical temple is what God wants to do in this temple. Listen, one more time. I'll say it one more time. What you see when the temple is filled with smoke and no one is able to minister, God wants to have that same union with you and me where he enters in and there's no need to forgive sins anymore. There's such a connection that he doesn't have to leave the house anymore. There's such a union there. And he hasn't found a people yet. He's chosen a people. He says, God, will you be my bride? Can we be down with you? Are you ready to roll with me? He's just looking for people to say, look, I really want to be in you. You don't have to work your own righteousness out. Just let me come in and I'll work it out. When he gets to people like this, then he can line that people up against the papal system. And he can say, look, this is what it really is right here. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. They will be clearly demonstrating not only in word, but in their lifestyle. They will love when people spit in them, in their face. I'm telling you, I'm not there yet. You spit in my face, we might have problems. 
listen, I'm telling you, the Christianity has to go beyond mental assent. It has to go beyond knowledge alone. You have to give him your anger. You have to give him your hatred. If you don't like people, you have to ask him to help you to love people. You don't want to go do missionary work? Fine. That's fine. Be completely honest. Lord, I don't want to do missionary work. Will you please put it in my heart to do it? I remember one day, I'll tell this story. Uh, I had a mental ascent to, to knowledge, to truth. I remember uh, my sister getting on my nerves. I don't know, anybody have sisters? My sister got on my nerves. She was disrespecting my mother. I grabbed her, took her down, folded her up, threw her in the closet. But I believed the Christian truth, you know? I felt bad. I went down to the basement, sat in the basement. I'm sitting there, and I raised my fist to God because I was tired of failing, you understand? I hate failing. I hate trying and not being successful. And I raised my fist to God and I said, God, I hate you. He didn't strike me down. He could have. But I raised my fist and I said, I hate you. Why do you want me to be good? I can't be good. It's too hard. I remember sitting in that basement by myself. A small voice said to me, go talk to your dad. I said, I don't want to talk to my dad. I don't want to talk to anybody. You know what? I'll go upstairs and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle my sister again. That's what I'm going to do. So I got up. I went upstairs. And I had a choice. I could either go right and deal with my sister. I go left in my dad's office. And I walked into that office. And I sat down in a chair. And I wanted to have a civil conversation like, Dad, you know, I'm getting tired of trying to be a Christian. It's kind of, it's kind of whack. And instead of me being able to express those words, I yelled and I screamed. And I said, I hate God. I'm tired of trying. I hate him. My dad, he just sat there. He got up, didn't say a word to me, he put his arms around me. You don't understand. That was the most wonderful thing my dad could have did. My dad likes to talk, but he didn't say a word. He just put his arms around me. You know, that's how God is. Man, you could yell at him and scream in his face. I'm not suggesting you do that. But I'm saying he could take it. Because we have not yet fallen and been broken because we think we're all right when we're all wrong. Do you really want to be a Christian? Do you really want him to change you? Do you really want your life to be a life of power? I say fall at his feet. There's a song we used to sing when I was little. My sister brought it home. It says, uh, down at your feet, O oh Lord, 
is the most high place in your presence lord we seek your face we seek your face for there is no higher calling no greater honor than to kneel and bow before your throne. And I'm amazed at your mercy, embraced by your glory, O oh Lord. I live to worship you. Father in heaven. Your presence is in this place. Your arms are extended. You desire your children to come to you. But we're afraid of you, Lord. We believe the lies the devil was told about you. We think we can do it without you, Father. We've been trying and trying and trying, and we've been failing and failing and failing. Father, we just want to be real. If this gospel is real, Father, please work that reality in my heart and mind now. I pray for each one under the sound of my voice, Lord. The one that is still doubting, the one that is still not placed their whole weight upon you, Father. I ask that you have mercy on us. Please, Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. I have to make an appeal. Tonight, you heard the voice of Jesus speak to your heart. And for the first time, For the first time, you want to lay all your weight on the Lamb. You want to be a Christian. I mean, a real one. Tonight. If that's your desire, I want to dismiss that we're going to stay back. And if you want to pray, we can pray. We can ask God to do something special for us. Is that all right? You have a blessed evening.